the Obsidian Codex, Episode 3, The Journals. November 11th, 2016. Field Notes, Dr. Robert Kerr, Austin, Texas. It's almost midnight. A cold front is moving in, bringing wind and rain to the hill country. If I wasn't creeped out before, <laughs> I am now. Where's my coffee? I was a little overwhelmed yesterday when I realized that these were indeed the secret journals of Nelson Kerr. The understanding that I held my grandfather's most hidden private thoughts in my hands filled me with a sense of profound happiness tempered by intrigue and wonder. What were his secrets? Who had hidden them? Why had they turned them over to me now, precisely? I began to read, slowly, savoring each word, jotting down notes, looking things up online. After two days, I've just now reached the end of the first journal. The opening entry is dated March 22, 1934. Nelson Kerr, deep in research for his dissertation, finds himself poring over a treasure trove of new documents from the 16th century discovered in an abandoned monastery. He becomes intrigued by a passage in a letter to an abbot from Bernardino de Sahagún, in which the Franciscan priest mentions something called El Libro de Obsidiana, mm -hmm. the Book of Obsidian. He insists that this indigenous text is dangerous and must be burned, despite his desire to preserve as much of the history and language of the Aztecs as possible. I'm familiar with his work from the Florentine Codex, which I've been freaking translating for a decade now. After that, there are pages and pages of short epigrammatic entries, often just research citations or possible clues. My grandfather had begun scouring every scrap of Conquest-era writing for additional mentions of this mysterious codex. Along the way, he also began charting the rise of fascism in Europe, drawing interesting parallels with the expansion of the Tepaneca Empire in the 14th century. There are descriptions of his dissertation defense, of his family celebration of <clears throat> a newly minted archaeologist, being him, from a long line of doctors before him, of a failed engagement to a childhood friend who just couldn't compete with Mesoamerica. But again and again, his mind returned to the Codex. For seven years, his normal work was punctuated by this obsession. Finally, he managed to track down the diary of one Father Rodrigo Alcina, who had drawn reproductions of some of the pages in the Codex, including one showing, um, here it is, the destruction of the Earth. Looking at it right now, Grandfather did a quick sketch of it in these pages. A man stands at the center of the apocalypse, with a speech curl twisting from his mouth. From it sprout mm, tessellations of a similarly shaped glyph, the one that stands for the devastation of war, 
Te o atl bloody flood and scorched earth. The man is literally reciting words that are shattering the world around him. It's quite chilling. Um, the priest also noted the name of the act that's being performed in this image. In Tlalpoloa Shoshli. Hmm. The last word is obscure, but he's glossed the phrase as El Rito de Aniquilación, the rite of annihilation. Alcina affirmed that the codex had been destroyed by Juan de Torquemada, who had discovered it during his wide-ranging research into the details of the conquest and the history of the conquered. Devastated by the dead end, Nelson Kerr was nonetheless determined to discover the source of the codex. At the very least, he thought, perhaps he could learn more details concerning its contents. If luck were on his side, he might even unearth another copy of the pre-Columbian pictorial text. Three more years of study yielded a clue, a marginal Latin gloss in an obscure collection of Indo-Christian hymns and nautil that warned darkly against, let me get the phrase correctly, Librum Nefandum Ex Urbe Tepuslan, the abominable book from the city of Tepuslan. Needless to say, <laughs> my grandfather wasted no time in catching a bus. November 11th, 2016. Field notes continued. This next bit is important enough that I should read three of Nelson Kerr's journal entries. I can almost imagine his voice. Highway crackling across the decades into my ears. May 25th, 1944. I had always assumed that my mentor Robert Redfield was glossing over the darker aspects of Tepoztlan in his 1930 study and attendant lectures, but I have been quite honestly taken aback at the hostility and suspicion with which my questions and entreaties have been met in this town. I have spent the past week fruitlessly inquiring of various elders, church leaders, and municipal functionaries whether any knowledge has been preserved locally concerning the Obsidian Codex, its origin, its authorship, and the possibility of its continued existence. 
most of the time, I have been left gawking in confused silence as my interlocutors simply stand and leave. Occasionally, threats or summary dismissals have been my reward. Today, however, I have experienced a breakthrough. Oscar Lewis, who teaches anthropology at Brooklyn College, has just arrived in town. He apparently spent some time there last year laying the groundwork for an in-depth study of the community that will more fully round the profile Redfield produced a decade and a half ago. Fascinated by the general thrust of my own research, Lewis has kindly introduced me to certain contacts of his. My credentials thus being confirmed by someone in whom they trust, these individuals promised to aid me, affirming their knowledge of a man who likely has information of value to my investigation. I shall meet him in just a couple of days. May 29th, 1944. Yesterday, I was taken to an aging shaman named Don Felix. In halting Nahuatl, for the man knows little Spanish, I explained my quest. Ah, yes. I imagined that someday an outsider would come searching for just such a thing. And even in this small town, we hear of the hunger for destruction that gnaws at the bellies of Europeans and Americans. There is little I can tell you, stranger. But know this. Ancient stories say that when Quetzalcoatl was preparing to leave this world, he entrusted his most dangerous lore to a secret society. Though this knowledge was to be passed orally from adept to acolyte down the years, the cabal painted a pictographic folding book to serve as a memory aid, a document that they knew must be kept from prying eyes. As a result, they became known as in Ide Pishkawa Itza Morshli, the Keepers of the Obsidian Codex. Does this cabal still exist? I pressed. Perhaps, he muttered, exhaustion visibly pulling on his ancient flesh. I know not, stranger. The scant words I have shared with you were spoken to me when I was very young. I have never pursued the knowledge you seek, and I urge you to turn away from this path. The keepers, if they are still among us, have kept their lore locked away for more than a thousand years. I can only assume that it is destructive enough to warrant such secrecy. He dismissed me with an enervated wave of the hand. The next day, I learned he had died in his sleep. A cabal, the keepers, what mysteries, so much more to explore. My mind is a buzz. Ah, June 3rd, 1944, a day I shall never forget. I have met the most incredible, loveliest girl. I went to the fountain just after dawn to retrieve some of the delicious stone-cooled water. I drew up short at the foot of the steps, however, when I saw her, an elegant maiden of some 18 years, lifting her clay jar to her shoulder. 
Ah, what lustrous black hair, honey-wheat eyes that glittered with intelligence, a wide mouth accustomed to laughter and conversation, soft curves that seemed to call out to my hands. Respectfully, but with confidence, I introduced myself and learned from her guarded responses that her name is Marta Ochoa Ortiz, daughter of one of the eight ayudantes, or representatives of municipal districts that serve in the ayuntamiento, or city government. Fluent in Mexicano, her mother being a Nahua from Santa Catarina. A few more questions revealed that I had guessed her age correctly and that she had just finished her schooling, one of the few females in the town to continue studies beyond the age of 15. She was well-spoken and remarkably poised. Understanding the treacherous waters I was dipping into, but driven nonetheless by emotions I had almost despaired of ever feeling, I asked whether I might write her. After a long pause that nearly stopped my heart, Marta agreed, naming an older shopkeeper who can serve as an intermediary for the time being so as not to enrage her parents. Though nearly 20 years her senior, I find myself grinning and humming romantic songs like a love-struck adolescent boy. Ah, Marta, she changes everything. Of course, I know the rest of that story well. My grandfather told it and retold it to me on countless occasions. How their courtship grew more and more passionate. How Marta's father learned of his daughter's love for a foreign professor twice her age. How the town had turned on the couple, forcing them to finally elope, as many men and women had done in Tepotztlan down the centuries. But they had never returned. The following year, my father was born in Austin, but Nelson Kerr vowed not to force his wife into a traditional female role. He encouraged her to continue her studies as soon as the child could be cared for by a nanny. And Marta Ochoa de Kerr embarked on her medical career just after her 21st birthday. There's a lapse of nearly a decade in the journal. It was a lovely time in their lives, I gather. My grandfather was slavishly dedicated to his wife, son, and the chairmanship of his department. Happy, I guess you could say. Although, <laughs> it's been so long since I felt joy that I wouldn't know. Oh shit, it's my kid. Mike, what are you doing up so late? Hey, I was asleep, but a nightmare woke me up. I had to call you. Son, you're 14 now. I know you're just naturally kind of skittish and sensitive, but you can't keep proverbially running to your father's arms every time you're scared. That's not it. Dad, the, the dream, it was about you. You were standing on a mountain, shouting words in another language. Naruto, I think. The sky was black, no stars. And red cracks were breaking it open. Talons appeared in one of the cracks, tearing it wider. And then I saw an eye. The horrible. Enormous. 
Dan, are you there? Yeah, uh, Mike, do you remember any of the words I was saying in this nightmare? No, but right before I jerked awake, I heard another voice. It also said something in Malto, a single word. I recognized it from when you tried to teach Thomas and me. Oh, yeah. What was it? Ayuk. It means never, right? Right, yes. Um... Look, son, it's, it's probably something you ate. It's, it's indigestion. Maybe, but just promise me, Dad, be a good person. All right. I know you're sad, and um, sad to the very core, but that doesn't mean you have to do bad things. You can choose the right path, no matter how depressed you get. I, I know what that feels like. Okay, son, of, of course I'm going to be a good person. I, I promise. And just go to sleep, all right? I love you, Dad. I love you too, Mike. Sweet dreams. See you in two weeks for Thanksgiving, okay? Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. That was not at all creepy. Oh, whatever. It's just a coincidence. Kid probably misses his dad. It's understandable. He's 2,000 miles away from here. And he's a really sensitive kid, too. A real social justice warrior, but only online. He's kind of agoraphobic. Spends most of his time inside, arguing with people online, Twitter posts, the whole nine yards. Um, He's got a good heart. Good heart. Back to the journal. As if destiny itself were warping the world to draw him closer to its darkest secrets, Nelson Kerr then stumbled across a letter dated February 21st, 1812, sent from priest and revolutionary general Jose Maria Morelos to Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla, leader of the Mexican insurgency against New Spain. Um... In the midst of a discussion of the siege of the city of Cuautla, Morelos warned he had discovered possible infiltration of one or more monastic orders on the slopes of Popocatépetl by an order of pagan priests known as Los Guardianes, the Keepers. The journal goes on to document the sporadic visits by my grandfather, to the 14 monasteries built by Franciscan, Dominican, and Augustinian orders just after the conquest. These sprawling masterpieces of architecture whose broad open-air atria were designed to make indigenous converts more comfortable with the imposing symbols of the new religion. With the pretext of archaeological study, he scoured their archives and interviewed the monks, finding little other than the most tenuous of hints. A breakthrough came when Nelson learned that four monks were leaving one of the Franciscan monasteries at the urging of Father Aquin Heibel, an American priest who had been petitioning Rome for decades to establish a Benedictine priory in Mexico. Now, with the support of the Mount Angel Abbey in Oregon, Heibel's dream of outreach would become a reality, and the order-switching monks 
had already moved to Cuernavaca to help navigate the initial bureaucratic red tape. Each of the four monks was from Tepoztlan. <laughs> A little digging revealed they were all related. More promising was the fact that members of the family had served in the same monastery for 150 years. Cornering the youngest of the group, Nelson Kerr laid out his evidence and insisted he be told the truth before he went to church leaders and revealed the existence of the cabal. The monk's name? You guessed it, Fausto Quevedo. With an inscrutable smile, he agreed to recite the Obsidian Codex. Are you sure about making those parts sound vintage? I mean, the original is just your dad talking kind of funny. <laughs> Dude, the listeners are gonna love it. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Well, like they say, you're the biggest rock star of the 21st century, Thomas. You're goddamn right I am. And the very last. <laughs>